Hello, listeners. I'm Brooke Warner. Welcome back to another book-minded, author-minded, right-minded episode. And I'm here with Grant Faulkner, who I know, like me, is looking forward to a little time off later this month. Uh, But Grant, before we take next week off, we're giving listeners another book marketing episode. And it feels essential that we do these from time to time because there's so much to know. And we have writers and aspiring authors and published writers who tune in each week. And I think even when you're not actively in the book marketing phase of your work, it's so important to know what's going on out there so that you're keeping tabs on the things that seem interesting to you and just generally staying in the know about what's possible when it comes to book marketing. And Grant, uh, you have a new book coming out in February, The Art of Brevity, Crafting the Very Short Story. Are you starting to think about marketing? And if and when you do think about marketing, what's top of mind besides overwhelm? Yeah, well, the first marketing tactic I always do is ask my podcast co-host to mention my new book on the air. (laughs) Check. (laughs) That was a paid placement, (laughs) except I didn't actually ask you, so thanks for doing so. Um, I think every writer hopes that their friends will chip in with the publicity side of things. Um, But seriously, I I am thinking about marketing and publicity. Actually, I'm fully in that mode right now, and it is a little overwhelming, but I'm, I'm super happy to be actually, you know, working with my publisher's team this time around. I'm publishing with the University of New Mexico Press. So it's my first time with the university press. And and I didn't know really what to expect, but uh, but I love the people that I'm working with. And we've we've mainly been working so far on the publicity side for now. So we've lined up several magazines like Writers Digest, Poets and Writers that are going to excerpt the book. And I'm going to write articles that feature topics from the book and other publications. And they've lined up a series of bookstore events, and they've submitted the book for review at publications and submitted it to uh, book festivals. And now we're looking into visits to MFA programs since it's a craft book. We haven't talked too much about paid promotion yet, but there will be some special email campaigns and a Goodreads giveaway. And I know paid promotion can make a difference, but I'm also a fan of organic word of mouth. So building a team of support amongst your friends, as I mentioned, or just literary influencers who you might know is really important. And and I actually, part of like getting ready ahead of time for this, like since you mentioned that, Brooke, is I compiled an email list of people who I think might be interested in my book. So I'll send them an email about the book when it launches and also ask them to leave reviews. Um, so my main strategy, it's not very strategic. I'm just all in, you know, I told my publicity team, Whatever they put on the table, I'm going to do it because I want the book to reach people. But the funny thing about this book is that this is now my sixth book. So I'm you know, relatively seasoned. You'd think I you know, know what I'm doing, but I still feel like I've got a lot to learn. Uh, so I'm curious if I can glean any tips from you based on your last book and all the books you're involved with. Uh, what marketing did you do for your last one? Oh, my gosh. I mean, the answer is not much. I hired a publicist. And so that was where I kind of put all my eggs into the publicity basket. But I've been hearing from a lot of authors lately that they're going to invest more in book marketing for future books in addition to their publicity campaigns. And so that's gotten my wheels turning on that topic as well. I mean, you're actually doing a lot. And if you have the luxury to lean into your publisher, then that's amazing. But a lot of people are doing it on their own. I actually think the people who are doing it on their own or who are hiring a team around them to support them with it, end up maybe doing more, doing better because they're invested on the front lines. Uh, And so I guess I am hoping that that's something that I'll adopt for myself when my next book comes out. And I did want to specify, you know, in case it's not clear, we've said this on future or rather past podcasts that book marketing is stuff that you pay for, you know, ads, 
editorials, blog spots, you know, things like that, as opposed to publicity, which is coverage for your book that you can't pay for, but publicists are super expensive. <laughs> so I just want to say that. But, you know, book marketing these days is way bigger than just these spots that you pay for. And we're going to learn about that from today's guest, Dave Chesson, who runs Kindlepreneur.com, because book marketing now reaches into things like metadata, which is the data that you put into the world about your book, your description, your categories, your keywords. And then you can market your book through your own website and through social media. You know, So in that sense, the domains and platforms that you control and create content for fall under the umbrella of marketing. So I'm paying attention to a ton of different things, but I don't think that in all the books that I published to date, I've done a superb job in any way, shape or form. Whereas like so many of my authors are amazing at it. You know, they dive in, they really learn about it. And, you know, certainly Dave's website, Kendra Kindlepreneur mm. is a is really educational. He has tools and strategies, and so that is a really good place to start. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm going to be paying attention, close attention, as we both get into thinking about our next books coming out and yours much sooner than mine. Yeah, yeah, I'll look forward to, to hearing more from you about what you're going to do. And speaking of Dave's site, I, I loved his list of seventy book marketing tips. I thought it was really fun uh, to peruse, and it was also affirming in ways I didn't expect. Uh, it was comforting to me that I'm I'm actually doing a lot of the things on the list, and I, I bet actually most writers, even beginning writers, are at least doing some of those things. And then it was just nice to look at the other things I'm not doing and decide if this is something I want to do or not, or have time for. And uh, just as a tip for writers, it's always important to assess what's what's really you and what you can manage because marketing and publicizing a book can be a full-time job if you want it to be. I don't think anyone does all 70 of those tips. But Dave's list of tips, you know, it just made me feel more in control, I guess. And that was a nice feeling. And it, it's interesting, Brooke, because so many of we writers were, you know, very uncomfortable with self-marketing a few years back. And and now I think many, if not most writers, are more comfortable with it because it's it's sort of just embedded in the expectations of writing and publishing now. Yeah, that's a really good observation. And I totally agree. People have to quickly get over it if they're uncomfortable just because of the modern world. And modern authors also need to be thinking about putting budgets out there, you know, both in terms of time and money to educate themselves about all the things on that list of 70 things, like you said. I mean, that's just a starting point. And then you figure out what kind of resources to allocate because you do have to spend money on this stuff, even if it's about building out or improving your website. Uh, you know, in my memoir class, we have a whole class on author platform, which is also, you know, so much of this stuff about marketing feeds into what it means to grow a platform. And the reason that we hold it in a class where people are just writing their memoirs is because we know that people need to start really early. Like most of our students will be, you know, two, three, five years out from publishing. And that's actually the very best time to begin to think about book marketing, your future book, because there's just so much that needs to be done foundationally. Like I said, your website, getting a professional headshot, thinking about your branding across your site and across social media, and then also getting clarity about the kinds of posts that you want to share on social media, like what kinds of articles or essays do you want to write about those 
stories that you might want to publish if you're writing fiction. And so I am, you know, I do see uh, marketing as a mosaic in this way. It's a pulling together of all these many parts and pieces that relate to your book with your book at the center and everything else shooting off in multiple directions from there. But then the trick is not to have those offshoots be tangential, right? It's got to all tie together and make sense and do the work of creating a very singular picture for your reader about who you are in the work that you do. Your word mosaic is is the perfect metaphor for this. You're, you're, you're tying together so many things at once. And, and I think you're, you're right also that those authors who have two, three, four, five years, they're in a great position. And and that's exactly when you, you, you should be planting the seeds for this, if not doing things outright. Um, so for I'm just going to give one example. I started a Substack newsletter uh, exactly a year ago. And I wanted to do it for many reasons. So it wasn't entirely in service of my upcoming book, but it definitely was uh, in my mind that the newsletter could help to build a conversation and a community um, around the topics in the book, you know, when it released. So I put in all that work, a year's worth of weekly um, newsletter posts in order to kind of have that in place for when my book launches in February. So I, I'd advise writers who, who want to publish, no matter if it's next year or five years from now, to take a look at the list and start doing some of those things. And it definitely doesn't hurt to get things like your website put together or your headshot ahead of time. It, it, it also just doesn't hurt to, you know, to write your author bio or figure out how Goodreads giveaway works, you know, like some of those things that you maybe have never experienced before. Totally. And all of this is why I'm so stoked to have Dave on the show today, because there is so much to know, and he is a great person to follow and learn from. And I hope that listeners will get excited about book marketing, because it is exciting, (laughs) especially when you start to see results, right? And you start to build and cultivate your platform and then start to actually feel proud of the presence that you have online. And all of that is really motivating, uh, which is why this stuff is important. But more important than important actually is fun. That's it. Yeah, it can be fun. And, you know, it's true. Like building your platform, I find it motivating for my writing. I think it's a type of vision board in a way, you know. And, um, yeah, with that, I I look forward to learning more from from Dave after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We have with us today Dave Chesson, and he's the guy behind Kindlepreneur.com, a website devoted to teaching authors about book marketing. It's recommended by Amazon KDP as the place where you can learn how to optimize marketing for your books. And Kindlepreneur has grown to be one of the largest book marketing websites around. I have spent significant time on it, Dave. I love it. You've helped all kinds of very high profile authors. And one of the things I love that you do is that you focus on both fiction and nonfiction authors. And we have a question about that. Uh, Dave is also the creator of Publisher Rocket, a software that helps authors see what's really going on in the book market and thus pick better keywords and categories, which is essential. So Dave, my gosh, you have a lot of great stuff for our listeners. Welcome to Write Minded. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. So you're a self-professed 
book marketing nut, uh, but your site is also really specific to Kindle, obviously, and Kindle strategies. So can you talk about why the focus on Kindle and what might be a second or third best marketing tip that's not Kindle specific? Yeah, actually, you know, back in the day when I first started the website, uh, I really focused on Amazon itself. And that was just because I had a lot of experience, but that was like eight, nine years ago or so. And over time, it's really helped me to uh, expand. And so there's a lot of times where I do talk about other markets. Truth be told is, I'm not gonna lie, I really, uh, I really enjoy going wide. I personally don't like the idea of, you know, putting all my eggs in one basket. And so I focused a lot of marketing on on how to better sell in Barnes and Noble, Kobo, and I've even been a consultant to BNN Press as well. But I keep the name Kindlepreneur just because you know it's the old branding and uh, it's not a bad domain, so I just stick with it. Well, Dave, you've got such an interesting personal story, and I, I really like how your website is laid out. Actually, with lots of you know, you've got the helpful info, but also a lot of personal stuff about yourself, and and you share about your dyslexia and your family and your status as ex-military and about your deployments. So I was wondering if you could talk uh, about how and why sharing personal stories in your marketing materials and online in this way is is one way you're walking the talk. You know, just growing up with this idea that. I wasn't meant to write, um, you know, struggling in school. And, and back then, too, by the way, dyslexia wasn't really as understood as it is today. Um, you know, there's different types of dyslexia. Back in the day, it was kind of a new phrase and it was all grouped together. So I didn't really understand it. And I just thought I wasn't meant to do it. And every time I would submit my English paper, you know, I just pray for it to be a C, at least a C. Let's get a C. Uh, all the other grades, like I was I was fine, B's and A's. And so you you go through your life and you just kind of think that maybe this thing isn't meant for you, that you're not meant for this, this skill or this, what this is, but it doesn't mean the passion goes away. And so for me, the biggest thing was, how do I accomplish that? How do I get over my fear? How do I overcome this limitation? And that became kind of a rallying cry for me that that's that became a bit of a motivation. And so when I talk to authors, everybody's different. Everybody faces something different in life. Maybe there's a struggle that they have. Maybe there is a limitation. Maybe there is something beyond just the desire for success, right? And I think it's a very important piece to every author out there. The reason for this is that getting over your fears, getting over those limitations and believing in yourself, I think is one of the biggest pieces uh, to success. And so I start by just laying it all out there, just letting people know what I faced, uh, you know, being on the other side of the world, uh, sometimes being separated from family, uh, struggling with an affliction. Um, And I like to write about how I kind of adapted to that, understood it, embraced it and, and move forward. It's inspiring, Dave. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, you and I have had some interaction over the years with my authors and you've helped me with some strategy. And I want to note how incredibly generous you've been with me. So thank you. And, you know, and the reason I wanted to say that is because there are a lot of scammers out there. And so when you find other like-minded and like valued people in this space, it's such a gift. And, you know, the Amazon thing is tough because there are so many people out there gaming Amazon and, 
you can, of course, make a splash and maybe earn a little money doing that, but not in a long-term kind of way. And it's certainly not a way to build a career. So I just wondered if you could talk about how your approach is different, you know, why you give so much away uh, for free. And also, you know, what are some of the things that you can do with Amazon that are more about like strategy and long-term growth? You know, that's a really good point. One of the things about tactics in general is that if anybody uses a, a tactic, either overusing it or using it for, say, nefarious purposes, then a good tactic can turn into a scammy component. And that's something that I, I actually struggled with a lot when I first started writing Kindle Pair. I didn't want these tactics or these strategies to fall in the hands of people that were just going to overuse it and just kind of muddy the water, if you will, you know, um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a terrible analogy, but truth be told is like, we're all swimming in the same pool. Please, you know, please go to the bathroom if you need to go to the bathroom, <laughs> like, right. Um, so some of the things that I did personally to try to say, minimize that, minimize the information getting into the wrong hands is that you'll notice that I never title any of my things with, you know, get rich quick kind of discussion points, right? Uh, it's never, hey, make $10,000 doing this one thing, right? Um, because when you put that in there, it kind of drives the people that are just motivated about the money, motivated about getting something. Uh, instead, I try to title my things to really fit with the idea of, no, somebody really wants to learn this. They want to understand how to do this thing. Um, so we never sens sensationalize uh, the title or content. I think that that really kind of helps to mitigate or minimize the amount of people that are taking our information and using it uh, for nefarious purposes. Well, Dave, you host a podcast called The Book Marketing Show. And, and Brooke and I love having fellow podcasters on the show because, for one, we get to ask the question, what mic do you use before the show starts? <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, one thing that's been wonderful um, for us is just having so many guests on and, and hearing their, you know, just learning from them and learning a lot of unexpected things. Um, so I'm curious to know if there's someone you've had on recently or a particular episode you might want to showcase for our listeners to go check out and, and what you in particular loved about the interview. A bit ago, I started doing a series that I really should repick up. The series was just kind of called Reviving a Dead Book, right? And what in this, it was about finding authors who had had a book that was making sales and then it just died, right? All of a sudden, the sales went away. And then them taking that book maybe a year, two, three years later and analyzing why did they decide to take this book again? What did they do to revive it? And then what kind of results they saw? And so it was interesting to do this, especially maybe once a month or so, because I would find this 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 pattern. And a lot of it was uh, people would choose to revive a book because in the years after first releasing it, they learned so many new things, right? Uh, they had better understood their keywords or their categories. They had better understood... Uh, the importance of a really good cover for their genre, one that fits their genre, not something that's crazy different, right? Um, or they just learn where they made a mistake. And so three years later, they decide, you know what, I'm going to apply this new knowledge that I have to this book that I know is good. I wrote it really well. People liked it when they read it. But now I'm going to shake it up. I'm going to improve those things. I'm going to relaunch it and then see what happens. And I've always enjoyed this series because you just kind of see the same thing, the same thing that they did, the same kind of results. And there's one person that actually sticks out in mind, um, and his name was Stuart Thaman. And what was really interesting was he took this concept of reviving dead books, and he actually worked for a publishing company back in the day. And he proposed to them, hey, 
we wrote this really awesome book 10 years ago, right? And we released it. And it, of course, it makes no sales now. What if you guys just let me go off and I'll take this book and I'll, you know, change the cover, clearly make a great book description for Amazon, you know, do these things on the Amazon sales page, update editorial reviews. And then when we release it, let me do some Amazon ads. Can you give me a budget? And they did. And all of a sudden he started turning these old books that were still good and then seeing major like new results. And he started doing this as a profession for them. Um, and in time, he stopped doing it. He now is actually just working on his own books, which is great. I do. I actually do enjoy his books. But it was super cool to be able to see this person take that at mass scale and really change up something that a lot of the publishing companies might not be using or thinking about. Nice. I love stuff like that, too. Just uh thinking a little outside the box and trying to make some money while you're at it. Uh, well, I want to make good on what I said in your bio, you know, this interest that I have in the fact that you actually focus on fiction writers in addition to nonfiction writers, because too often people just focus like the kind of people that do book marketing focus too often on only nonfiction. And so I saw that you were on the prolific writer, which is another podcast and you were speaking specifically to fiction writing tips. So can you talk a little bit about how fiction is different from nonfiction when it comes to marketing strategies? And if you're speaking to a novelist, because we have tons of listeners who are either novelists or aspiring novelists, you know, how would you frame that conversation for them? Like, how would it be different from a nonfiction writer? When it comes to looking at the books, I like to start by putting myself in the chair of the shopper, right? And so for nonfiction specifically, shoppers are looking to be able to say, um, face a pain point, create a solution, and they want to make sure that the pain point or solution fits them. And so what I mean by that is, is that it's how do I describe the problem I have and what I want to solve with this book? And more importantly, does that fit me? Now, fiction, on the other hand, is a little different because it's not about a pain point or a solution. Instead, it's about making sure that this is their kind of book. This is their kind of story. And so people start by shopping by, they want a, they want validation, right? Uh, if you say the word, I would like a fantasy book. Well, there's no way any of us is going to be able to present the perfect fantasy book for that particular person. Instead, they kind of have in their mind an idea of the kind of fantasy book that they want. And so when it comes to marketing fiction, I think it's really important for authors to do their best to truly convince that shopper or that potential client that this is their kind of fiction, the right kind of fiction. And I say that this is really important, especially in the digital age, whether it's on Barnes & Noble Press or it's on Amazon, is that you really need to make sure that your cover, title, subtitle, and book description play a very symbiotic role. Because the shopper will go to Amazon or whichever online market, and they're going to describe the kind of book in the search bar and they're going to look at the cover and they're going to be asking themselves, does that cover represent what I think this kind of book should show? And then they're going to look at the title and the subtitle. And hopefully those things, again, assure them, yep, yep, you're in the right spot. And then when they get to the book description, they need to feel as though they truly are in the right spot. And everything that we do in our marketing is to help people to say, yes, this is your kind of thing. This is your place. An example of this is that when you are doing Facebook ads for a book, it is great to help liken a book to something people understand. So it's not just the advertisement or the really cool sci-fi, you know, uh, we'll say 
battle cruiser, you know, intergalactic war picture, which that's cool. That will definitely catch the eye. But help me to say, oh, yeah, OK, this this is my kind of book. And so sometimes using phrases of like, if you like Old Man's War and Starship Troopers, then you're going to love intergalactic battle. That immediately says, oh, yeah, I know Starship Troopers. I know Old Man's War. Oh, man, if it's of that elk, then let me take action. You see, you didn't describe the story. You didn't break it down. You helped me to fully say, okay, yeah, this is my kind of book. And so to kind of recap on that, really, uh, nonfiction plays a part of what are you doing for me and is this for me? But in fiction, it's about, yeah, this is your kind of story. This is what you're looking for. And so I think that if you approach fiction from the idea of how do I relate this? How do I ensure that they understand this truly is their kind of sub-sub-genre? Then you will really nail that process down. Well, speaking of sub-genres, Amazon Kindle rankings. You have a whole book to give away free on your site. So everybody should rush and, and download it. But I'm curious about this because authors, um, you know, of course, many authors are really obsessed with their rankings, but I've never been sure if there's a direct correlation between rankings and sales or why rankings are so important. And, you know, does, does Amazon actually privilege books with higher rankings? Well, not directly, no. Um, just because something has uh, better rankings doesn't mean that Amazon will give it direct change and input. That being said, though, there are indirect ways that ranking does help a book. Uh, for example, when you do rank better in a category, your book will show up more often in that category. So if you selected a category that you're able to rank in the top 20, then your book is showing on that page, right? Which means that people who like that category will be able to see it. Now, a caveat to this, though, is that from our data, we only found that, and again, this is just Amazon specifically, but only 35% of categories out there actually have shoppers go to it to check to see whether or not what other books are in that category. Um, and we predominantly that's filled with with fiction. So like, for example, sci-fi military. Yeah, if you're on the top 100 for that, you're actually getting more shoppers to see your book. And so your ranking in that category is incredibly important. But if you're in mathematics and calculus, I mean, let's face it, you're not. there's not a lot of people that go to Amazon and be like, oh my goodness, I need the latest in calculus and mathematics. And so that's clearly not going to help you. So with regards to category ranking, that can help depending on uh, what genre or what subject uh, you're in. With regards to just Amazon showing your book, uh, it's not so much about the rankings, but it's about proving to Amazon that you make them more money. So if I type in lit RPG game lit cultivation, which by the way is my actual favorite search term uh, when looking for books, Amazon wants to try to present to me the book that has the highest chance of someone like me buying that book. So if they show book one, so we'll say book A first, and they keep showing it and showing it, nobody's buying it, but instead people are choosing book B, then they're going to move book B to the top because that makes them more money. So in essence, it's really about what book Amazon thinks will make them more money. And in so that book will make more money and therefore the rank will go up. Thank you for that. I have also always been curious and that's very helpful. Uh, well, in, Dave, in closing, you're doing about 10 billion things and we certainly want to turn people on to your site if they don't know about it already, kindlepreneur.com. Uh, but we're curious, are you writing a book or what's your next book? <laughs> I actually want this one's a little weird. Um, and before <laughs> I get into that answer, the uh, I also want to add one more thing to that too on my last statement. Oh, perfect. A lot of people have talked about like Kindle Unlimited, right? 
and should I be in Kindle Unlimited or not? And a lot of authors have theorized that Amazon gives Kindle Unlimited books extra favor. And for any listeners who don't understand what Kindle Unlimited is, it's basically this program where you tell Amazon, yeah, Amazon, I'll only sell my ebook on you. Um, and if I do that, then you're going to give me these benefits, right? And so people that are enrolled in Kindle Unlimited can download my book for free. And then as they read, I get paid for the page reads. So here's the thing about that program. Amazon doesn't do anything that directly says, okay, we're going to give extra love to the Kindle Unlimited books. But what does happen though, is that that rankings that we just talked about, there are two ways to improve your rankings. The first is a sale. So when somebody goes and buys your book, then your ranking improves. But the second one is a download, not pages read, just a download. Those are the two things that affect your Amazon bestseller rank. So if you are on KU and somebody decides to download your book, that is just as strong of an indication of success and conversion than a sale. And so Amazon, like I said, right, is all about showing which books convert, which books make them more money. And so Amazon is going to see KU books getting downloads and they're going to treat that like a sale. And so KU books tend to beat out normal books when it's kind of toe to toe. And so an example of this is that if I'm enrolled in the KU program as a shopper and I see book A, which is not KU, and I see book B, which is KU, I'm probably going to choose the one that's free to me, right? And so Amazon sees that. And that's why a lot of authors can see that KU books tend to show up more often. So it's not a direct thing, but it's that whole thing about KU downloads affecting rank just as much as the sale. Now, coming back to your question on, on books, um, I'm actually working with somebody to, I guess the correct word is to co-produce a book. This person, his name is Luke Rogers, and he is the uh, co-host of a podcast called Blurry Creatures. And um, it's a, it's actually a really fun uh, podcast out there. Uh, they analyze whether or not, you know, like they actually look at Bigfoot and whether he's real. They also use a lot of scripture, uh, not pushing any religion or scripture or anything like that, but they they kind of look at things like Nephilim and, and so forth. And one of the books that he keeps talking about is the book of Enoch, which is a, it's an apocrypha, which means it didn't make it into the Bible, but it's one of those books that some people kind of argued should have. It was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, all that jazz. So the thing is though, is that it's public domain, which means there's no copyright on the book of Enoch. And since he's constantly talking about it in relating to his podcast, um, I'm helping to co-produce a putting together the book of Enoch using their branding, uh, creating art for chapter themes, uh, developing great front and back matter. And then as a podcaster, one of my biggest recommendations, anybody who's on a podcast, if you're ever selling a book is go buy an easy domain to remember. So we're looking at something like enochbook.com because when you're in a podcast, you say, Hey guys, go to my book. You know, it's so much easier to just say, Hey, go to enochbook.com and that will just take you straight to my Amazon sales page. Um, and so we're going to do that. And I think that that'll be a really big success. He has a really big following on his podcast. He'll release that. And it's going to be a great one-two punch because the moment that that happens, he'll have a whole bunch of sales from his podcast. Amazon's going to see those sales and they're going to start to show his book of Enoch at the top. Um, and so then he'll not only get sales from his podcast, He'll also get sales from just Amazon searchers that are either looking for Book of Enoch, Enoch, or, you know, Apocrypha. So like I said, it was a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> really cool, though. Thank you for taking us on that journey. And, uh, you know, 
per usual. Thanks for your generous answers. We're really happy to have you on the show, Dave. Absolutely. And again, thanks for having me. Absolutely, Dave. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to this week's book trend, which is about Mastodon, which which is not a massive elephant-like mammal of the genus Mammoth that flourished worldwide from the Miocene through the Pleistocene epochs. It's a popular yet somehow challenging alternative to Twitter that writers seem to be flocking to, if not running to, or dipping their toe into, or maybe even running away from, which might include me, actually. I should note that we're recording this on November 27th, so that by, by the time this airs, there, there might be a platform called Triceratops or Brontosaurus that writers are now on. Brooke? <laughs> Are you mastodoning or trumpeting or stampeding or do whatever version of tweeting one does on Mastodon? Oh, my God. I am decidedly not. Uh, you might remember that this was the year I committed to tending to my Instagram. So by the time I Mastodon, it will be either gone or it will be 2027. <laughs> uh, how about you, Grant? Uh, actually, um, you told me that you gave it a whirl. So what's it like? A whirl might be an exaggeration. I went there uh, with good intentions. I found it very confusing, not exactly inviting. I tried Hive as well, which was easier, but also didn't really feel fully formed. So I, here's my take. I, th I think many people and many writers in particular are deleting their Twitter accounts for reasons I don't have to explain. And once they delete their accounts, they're looking for an alternative. I understand that. But there really isn't one, at least not one that's exactly like Twitter or even close enough to Twitter. So people are going to Mastodon and Hive like for a place to go for an alternative Twitter, except it's not the platform that's attracting them. They're just fleeing. <laughs> and they're just kind of following right. each other because that's what happened to me is I saw a friend of mine, a writer friend who kind of guided people to follow her on Mastodon and listed her handle and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, I better do that. But I think a platform like Mastodon is providing temporary shelter from the storm and, and isn't going to really manifest into something. But who knows? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the fact that Mastodon has 6 million users, which sounds like a lot, but Twitter had <laughs> 450 million. Who knows what it has by now? Uh, and Mastodon is also, it's not a commercial business like Twitter. It's an open source initiative that crowdfunds and it doesn't have any advertising, which is appealing. But we haven't had a social media platform, you know, that's not billionaire centric and trying to maximize profits, which means monetizing users. So, I, I mean, I like all these efforts, but it's also, you know, there's so many of these kinds of things do pop up kind of like a dime a dozen. And then the ones that really take, I guess you just don't know until hindsight. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm all for that part of of Mastodon that's that's non-commercial. I find it really inspiring, um, especially as one who comes from a nonprofit community with similar intentions and similar ways to bring people together. I was just a little confused about how to join because some of the servers that I'd heard were for writers. You know, I googled what how to join Mastodon, how to find other writers, and those servers that I was guided to, you know, they weren't accepting invitations, so I didn't know how to join, and. 
you don't just create a profile on Mastodon like you do on Twitter. There are, there are many Mastodon instances, they call them, or servers running, and, and they are run and hosted by volunteers. So each of them has their own rules and codes of conducts and policies for joining. Um, it's very similar to Discord, uh, which I'm also just learning. So yeah, I don't know. I, got, I, I definitely have a learning curve with these. That sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> really overly difficult. I, I saw that there were 8,000 Mastodon servers, which just, it feels like an obstacle, you know, and this notion of needing to be invited. But, you know, the fact that people have so much time for it is fascinating. Uh, but it also shows that why these kinds of things work is when they are one known entity that people at least think they can trust. Yeah, it's hard to explain. But after you've essentially homed yourself with a server, you can then interact with people on other servers and follow and be followed by people on other servers. Your timeline of posts will be driven by the server you join. But if you belong to a server with thousands of users, then your timeline is going to be full of those thousands of users, as I understand I'm it. I'm so glad you're explaining um, <laughs> this. And so I don't, yeah, as I said, I didn't quite make it the other day, but I am seeing a lot of people tweeting farewell to Twitter and listing their Mastodon handles. So I, you know, I could be there soon, but I've got a hunch that someone is cooking up a new and improved version of Twitter that we also might be seeing soon. I'm sure you're right. I, I'm not sure if I can say I hope you're right. Um, but the, the climate is definitely right for it. And people are desperate, it seems, for someplace new to land. Uh, but in the meantime, why, while all those people are figuring that out, we are here as a place for you to land 51 weeks a year, Grant. Uh, and oh. that is because we take Christmas week off. And oh, that, <laughs> that is next week. You get to have the week off. We get to have the week off. Our producer, Jeremy, gets to have the week off. So we will be back with you in the new year, Monday, January 2nd, to be precise, which is when our next episode will drop. Uh, listeners, Grant, I get to say it. See you next year. All right. See you next year, everyone. Can't wait. No, I can't wait. <laughs> Good. <laughs> 